one. That's where we are this morning. Uh, in the Bible, there aren't many men who we can look at who had lives which seem to have no blemish, lives which seem to have no compromise within them. But Daniel, uh, who was an administrator in the courts of many kings, foreign kings, he was a man who had no real issues that we read of within the Bible. He's a role model that we can all certainly look towards. And we're going to look this morning at Daniel and his three friends in the midst of Babylon. And, and throughout the Bible, many of us will know that Babylon is always seen as, as a picture of the world. And not just as a picture of the world, but a picture of the systems the ideologies, the, the agendas that the world has to offer. And in Daniel chapter 1, we have this insight of what it looks like to live in the midst of this Babylonian world system. A, a world system that's in opposition to the God of the Bible. A, a world system that's in opposition to the Bible. A world system that's in opposition to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 and, and not just look at how we can survive in this Babylonian world system, but how we can thrive in this Babylonian world system. Because in the four men that we read of this morning, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we see that they didn't just get by in Babylon. Actually, they excelled in Babylon. They succeeded in Babylon under the watchful gaze of an almighty God. And as you read the book of Daniel, you will see that there are many parallels between what these men face in Babylon and in what we face as believers in Jesus Christ here in 2023. I think we can learn from Daniel about how to stand up for our faith. I think we can learn from Daniel about how to stand out and be different. And I believe that we can learn how to live behind enemy lines. Because if we look at the world that we are living in, Babylon is all around us. Would you agree? This world system, this culture that's seeking to reorientate, reprogram the people of God. So stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. We're looking at Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 8. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, the young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
So then the chief of the units gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this scripture, this God-breathed, God-inspired scripture. The very word of God. Would you speak to us by your word? Convict us and challenge us and encourage us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we are living in confusing and slightly concerning times, except we know that we can look to you as our rock, as our steadfast Savior. We trust in you, Lord, and I pray that you speak to your church this morning by your word, through your spirit. Amen. Please do take a seat. I think it's important, first of all, for us to to set the scene, to think about where we are in time and where we are in history. Uh, It's about 605, 606 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar has gone out and he's basically gone to the Egyptians first, and on the way back he's gone to Jerusalem, and he's besieging Jerusalem. And he gets this message from, from Babylon that his, his father has died. And so what happens is he rushes back home and, and takes a few of these uh, Jewish men with him and a few of the articles of gold with him because he wants to get back to take complete control. As we read through this book, and, and for me, Daniel is one of my favorite books in the Bible, along with most of them. As a book, the most important thing is this, and we can take this for our lives living in the midst of a Babylonian culture. God is in control. God raises up kings. God pulls kings down. God raises up nations. God pulls nations down. The circumstances are all under his control. Look at verse 2. It says, The Lord gave. He was in control here. Not Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God was overseeing what was taking place. Now, to carry on setting the scene, the temple of God here in Jerusalem was was pillaged. Some of the golden articles were taken back from Jerusalem into Babylon. And what King Nebuchadnezzar did is he took these articles of gold and he brought them into his house, the house of his God. And just stop and think about what kind of statement Nebuchadnezzar was making there. A statement for the people of Babylon, a statement for the people of Israel, and a statement for the whole world. The statement was this, our God is better than your God. Our God is greater than your God. Our God was victorious where your God failed. And is that not the story of today? That our God is outdated and unnecessary. Our God is no longer part of what we should call modern culture or society. Where the gods of me, myself, and I are far much greater than the God that you serve. Important to recognize as well that not only did they bring the the treasures back from Babylon, the gold, they also brought a greater treasure back. And that was the youth of Israel. They brought back the youth of Israel, the greatest of the next generation. 
And if you consider uh, the wisdom of Nebuchadnezzar here, he's crippling the nation of Israel. He's bringing the best of the best, and he's going to seek to retrain them. He's going to seek to remold them and reshape them. And if you look at Satan's strategies throughout history, time and time again, he goes after the young people. Consider Hitler, Nazi youth programs. Consider the education system of today, seeking to attack the youngest, seeking to attack the most vulnerable. But it's here in this backdrop, right in the center of defeat, in enemy territory, that we're going to find Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the first thing I want you to do is I want you to put yourself into their shoes. They were incredibly young men. Between the ages perhaps of 13 and and low 20s. They were taken from their homes. But consider that. They were not taken from their homes. They were forcibly removed from their homes by an enemy invader. They arrived in this incredible city after traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles. And their future was completely unknown. And I look at this story, and no doubt there were many young Jewish men, but how many do we read of who stood against the Babylonian system? I think that these teenagers coming into Babylon were impressionable, perhaps easily influenced, certainly lacking some of life's experiences. And just think about the teenagers of today. How would the teenagers of today have fared in this situation? Are they resilient? Are they strong-willed? These men were the cream of the crop within the Israeli system. They were of royal descent, some of them. They were smart, they were athletic, they were wise, they were knowledgeable, they were good-looking, they were teachable, and they were able to serve. And they found themselves in a foreign land. They found themselves in a foreign culture. They're in this city, and it's not just a city. Babylon is one of the greatest cities that was on earth at that time. Ahead of knowledge and science and wonder and technology. And they find themselves there And there were different smells. There were different languages all around them. The ideologies that people held to were completely different. The outlook on life, the perspective of life, was beyond what they had experienced there in Jerusalem. They stood out, they were different, and they did not feel at home. Think about the parallels to you and me here on this earth at this time. As a Christian, as someone who's going against the flow, as someone who's going against the tide. Peter wrote this. He said, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, as pilgrims, as sojourners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Peter is saying very clearly, you're supposed to feel different. As a follower of Jesus in this culture, in this day, in this age, on this earth, you are supposed to be different. You are passing through. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. And this is important. Yet because you are not 
of the world. That's you, that's me. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I'm sure many of us have heard this expression, you are in this world and yet you are not of this world. That's what Jesus was saying to the early disciples. It's what he's saying to you and me as well. The world hates you not because of who you are, but because of who you've chosen to give your life to, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul writing to the Philippians said, our citizenship is in heaven. Writing to the Colossians, he said, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. It's very obvious as you look around you in the world, there's a horizontal, but there's also a vertical. Uh, Paul, Jesus, Peter, they're all saying, don't just keep your eyes on the horizontal. Ensure that you have a focus very clearly on the horizontal. To recognize that we are in this world, but not of this world. To recognize our citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven. You see, we are in a very similar position to these four men who are finding themselves in Babylon. We also live in a world system that is actively seeking to reprogram, remodel, refurbish, reorientate God's people. To change the view of the Bible to change the view of Jesus, to change the view of the key fundamental doctrines of our Christian faith. And not only is the world system we're looking in, we're living in trying to change the Christian, it's also doing a very good job of shaking and shaping those who are not in this church of Jesus Christ, who follow him. And this is what we must be guarded against. We must be guarded and prepared to live in this current climate, in this very Babylonian culture that is seeking to change the way we think. You know, quite often, if we're having a difficult day at home, I ask Becca the question, are you, are you surviving or are you thriving? And sometimes in our Christian life, I'm sure we can feel like we're surviving. We're just getting by. But, but Daniel here, and the way he lived we can see a way how we can thrive in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation we find ourselves in. We as the church are to be salt and light. We are to be different. You shouldn't look within a church and see very similarities or lots of similarities to the way of the world. It should be different. And so if we look at this morning, some of the methods of reorientation that the Babylonian system brought upon these men because it's very similar to what the world is doing to us, what the world is doing to our children, our grandchildren, and what the world is doing to those outside of the Christian faith. The first method is this, re-education. If we look in verse 4, it says, Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians. Now when you look at this, this is a three-year program. Um, How many of us have been to university? Decent number. You go off, you go to a random city, you get stuck into education, in a completely different world system, and you're just inundated in this new way of living. And it's kind of exciting at first, kind of terrifying, but you're learning all sorts of stuff. 
That's what's happening to these three men. Apart from they've been forcibly removed to this city of Babylon. But they're given this three years of teaching and training. No doubt they were taught the new languages that surrounded them. Literature, history, culture. And you might say that's all good and well. That's quite a nice thing to do when you go to a nice new city. But what about being taught the new religions? The different gods that we worship? About sorcery, astrology, divination? All these things which are so countercultural to your upbringing in Jerusalem under the rabbis, under the Torah. And no doubt they brought the best of the best teachers in. These would have been their charismatic, enthusiastic professors who could just teach them day in, day out, and make them excited about learning these new things. They were immersed in this new way of life, completely immersed for three years. And I find it quite interesting because in three years, no doubt, they'd retrained and remodeled so many of these young people. And they were mid-teens to late-teens. They knew they had to work hard because what they had to do is they had to take all that previous learning, break that down, and then reteach them. But consider what we do in our day and age. We take our young children and we put them into school. And year after year after year, they are taught indoctrinated into a certain way of thinking, into a certain way of programming and analyzing and taking all the information that's given to them. And we hand them over. And we look at this in the beginnings of indoctrination. The beginnings of indoctrination is always through education. It's always through instruction. And it's always just through information. That's how it starts off. You get into the minds of the young people. And they were being educated here in the ways of the world. If you think about our culture now, we live in an information-rich age, do we not? I think for every kid that I teach at school, not one of them was born into a world where a smartphone, iPhone, did not exist. It's just there, and it is always there. They have this information. We have this information literally at our fingertips. The good, absolutely. The bad, definitely. And the ugly, always there in our faces. Information is constantly being thrown at us. We are almost saturated by information. At the end of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 12, when he's speaking of the end times, he says that there will be an increase of knowledge. And is there not an increase of knowledge in our day today? I mean, just think about you coming into church this morning or you walking about town yesterday or whatever you were doing, how much information was thrown at you through your eyes, through your ears, through your senses, your taste, your smells. All this information is constantly coming in and our brains are constantly trying to process everything that is happening. What about when a whole world system has one objective and the objective is to get all of the masses, the general population, to think in a certain pattern, to think in a certain way, to fit a certain mold. When I was looking at this, my mind had to go back to the pandemic. When you could have a conversation with 10 different people during the day, and you'd ask them the same questions, and you'd get the same set of answers. You'd ask them about, the same opinion, about an opinion, they'd all have the same opinion. They'd have the same ideas because all they'd been listening to was the mainstream media, which was feeding them 
some lies, some truths, over and over and over again. And everyone had the same ideas. And it didn't take long, did it? Think about having someone for three years and just pumping them full of information. Think about us sending off our kids to universities where they're pumped full of information. Some good, some bad, some extremely ugly. Remember what James said last week. Everyone can have their own opinion as long as it's the right opinion. That's the world that we are living in. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowledge and learning are not evil. I love reading. I love listening to podcasts. I love watching documentaries. I love learning about new things. In fact, now, more so than I was at school or university. Because I actually see the point of doing so. But the message here is not one of let's stop learning. Let's stop this. The message here is one of caution. The message is one of raising awareness. For ourselves, absolutely, to be aware of what we're listening to, what we're watching, what we're hearing, what we are speaking about. And yet more importantly, this is a warning for our children. For our children and for our grandchildren. You see, it's this next generation that Satan is after. Always has been throughout history. But especially today in the state-run education system where kids are brought in. And from an early age, they are taught about relationships, sex, education. And then they're just built upon layers, upon layers, upon layers. And so suddenly they're just brainwashed by these ideologies and these agendas that are prevalent in all, most, pretty much all state-run schools. And not only is that in primary schools and secondary schools, but then that goes on to colleges and to liberal universities. The truth is this. These kids need to be raised up in the word of God. And those of us with children, we have the ability to do so now. Those of us with grandchildren have the ability to do so now. But you might ask, Andy, I don't have children. I don't have grandchildren. What do I do? We get on our knees, we pray, and we have to fast. We have to seek the Lord for the children in this country, but across the whole world. You see, these kids need to be washed in the word and not brainwashed by the world. Uh, We can't solve it. I can't solve it by speaking here from the front. But what I can do is I can go to an almighty God. And I can seek him. I can pray to him. Because these kids, when you look at what they're learning, when you look at what they're taking in, it makes you wonder, what will the state of the church be in 10, 15 years' time? These kids are so brainwashed by the world's ideologies that they come out basically thinking one thing and one thing only. You know, the one thing that I have noticed, I've been in schools now for 10 years, the one thing I've noticed which has been dramatically on the decline is this idea of critical thinking. In a school now, you get taught something, and that's, that's it. It's gospel, right, to use that expression. It is truth, because someone's told you that it's true. Someone in authority from the front of the classroom has told you that this plus this equals this, and therefore you believe it. Whereas actually, where's the discussion gone? Where's the debate gone? Where's the dialogue gone? Where's this idea of thinking gone? We should be teaching our children how to learn and love learning, 
not just giving them information upon information, which is just saturating their poor brains. I was reading um, Hosea this week. I'm really struck by, by this passage. God is, is speaking through the prophet Hosea against Israel and what's going on in Israel. And this is Hosea 4.6, if you want to write this down. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priest for me. Because you've forgotten the law of your God, because say because you've forgotten the word of God, because the word of God is no longer prevalent, I will also forget your children. The New Living Translation says this, My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. They don't have that knowledge, the good knowledge, of who God is. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand who Jesus was on this earth and did upon the cross for them. That's what kids need to know. That's the knowledge that is needed in this world. Not the reorientation, not the remodeling, but the gospel truth of Jesus Christ hanging upon a cross, bleeding, broken for their sins. Recognizing that it's in him they have freedom not the freedom that this world seems to offer what can we do we need to make sure that our information sources are checked we need to make sure we are careful about what we're letting in and the primary thing that we need to let in is this the word of god colossians 3:16 let the word of christ dwell in you richly let it be the word of God which is feeding you. Let it be the word of God which is transforming you and giving you a heart for God and you a heart for God's people. And Jesus loves children. He loves children. The second method that we see in this Babylonian system is this. Feed them up to soften them up. Feed them up to soften them up. Verse 5, it says, The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so at the end of that time they might serve before the king. They were in Babylon, this immense city. They were captives. And what happened? They got the most amazing, extravagant buffet. Sorry, Jack, for talking about food again. This most extravagant buffet all the time. They had the king's delicacies. They had the king's wine. If you read about what the tables were like for the kings in those days, it's ridiculous the amount of food that was on offer all day, every day for these men. They were literally given the royal treatment for three years, day in, day out. This was an honor. This was not normal. They had it all. Well-treated, well-looked after. And you can read this and go, well, captivity doesn't sound too bad. Yes, they're away from home. Yes, they're away from their God. Yes, they're away from the temple. But they've got food. They've got reteaching. They've got all, you know, basically they wake up, go and have this mega breakfast, go and sit and listen to some guy who probably knows his stuff inside out, probably quite entertaining. Then they go and have elevenses. Then more lectures, then lunch. It's on a plate for them. How easy would it have been for these men to have simply been accustomed to a 
the place that they found themselves in. This wonderful lifestyle, this food literally on a plate, day in, day out. How easy would it have been for them to simply arrive at a place where they were comfortable with their new way of living? Where this Babylonian world system didn't really seem too bad anymore because they got good teaching and they got good food. As Christians in the West, as Christians in the United Kingdom, we need to be aware of the dangers of comfortable Christianity. Comfortable Christianity. I know that I needed this warning this week. I needed shaking up this week. I need reminding about the grace of Jesus Christ, the costly grace of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The warning is this. The warning is a warning of complacency that can creep in with a comfortable lifestyle. If you're being honest with yourself, how comfortable is your life right now? Mine's pretty comfortable. It's quite straightforward. There are stresses. There are worries, there are concerns, but I have a roof over my head. I have a car that gets me to my job. I have a job. I have food. I have all these things. We must be aware of this complacency that can lead to much worse. You see, if we're not careful, if we're not God on guard in our Christian lives, we can be lulled into a false sense of, of security. We can think that we're just okay, that we're doing all right, and therefore we can just stay in the state that we are in. A state where we can easily become the overfed, comfortable, sleepy Christian. You know what I'm saying? On a Sunday afternoon, we had a big roast dinner, and you sit down and you just feel a little bit sleepy, a bit tired bit lethargic, that kind of that kind of feeling where we don't want to move forwards, where we don't want to change. And we're quite happy, aren't we, in that situation? It's quite a nice place to be. These men found themselves at the king's table, day in, day out. Wonderful lectures on, on culture and history and, and all sorts. But what we can do, instead of indulging in the king's delicacies is we can begin to find ourselves indulging in the world's delicacies. Where we try and have our Christian life with something else. We're trying to step in and out, we're towing that line, and it's very grey, and it's very dangerous. You see, if complacency is undealt with, complacency is going to lead to a casual attitude towards Christianity. It's going to lead towards a casual attitude towards church and church attendance and church commitment and church as a body. It's going to lead towards ultimately a casual attitude towards what Christ Jesus has done for you upon the cross. That's what comfortable living can lead to so quickly and so easily. And if that attitude is undealt with, it will lead to something called compromise. Because you don't know the Word of God, because you don't read the Word of God, because you don't have that discernment, because you're not in the Word and with God's people. And suddenly, you're reading about different things, hearing different things, the Word of God changes and shifts in your perspective, your view of Jesus might change very 
subtly, but that compromise can so easily come in when our attitude towards Christ changes. And then that compromise, if that's undealt with, is going to lead to a conformity. Where you look into the church, and it's no different from the world. When you look at the life of a so-called believer in Jesus, and his life is no different to his neighbor next door. Because he's no longer transformed, he's conformed to the image and the pattern of this world. And it's this world that's affecting him, influencing him, rather than the word of God. Paul says this, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not allow the world to pressurize you and shove you into its mold. Do not allow that, but instead be transformed. That's metamorphosis, that wonderful transformation, that that picture of, of, of beauty coming from literally from the inside out. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Complacency to, leads to a casual attitude towards Jesus, which leads to compromise, which leads to conformity. We need to counter that by coming back to the Word of God, by seeking that renewal of our minds. So the third method of reorientation is this. And we find it in verses 6 and 7. It's renaming. Renaming. And it says, From now, among those of the sons of Judah are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. Look, I think that word again, gave, is incredibly important to consider. These names were imposed upon these men. They were forced upon these men. This identity, this name change, was made to happen. Think about what's happening in the world. You don't get asked about anything, it's just given to you. It's forced upon you, this this identity shift, this name changing. But he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Can we get the table up on the screen, uh, Daniel? And we're going to look at some of the significances of the name changes that we find here. Firstly, really interesting and quite exciting. Ignore the names on the right, just look at the names on the left and read them all out together. This is God, okay? In Babylon, he is the God who is my judge. He's the God who is gracious. There's no one like him. Who is like God? The Lord helps. And if you're surrounded by these other three men, that's good things to remember, right? As you're saying their names out loud, as you're speaking about who they are. But look at the name changes. Daniel, God is my judge. Belteshazzar, the treasure of Bel. Bel being Baal, one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Name change. Command of Aku, who is one of the moon gods. Mishael, who is like God? Meshach. Who is like Aku? Who is what Aku? It's just a like Aku. My apologies. The moon god. Azariah, the Lord helps. Abednego, servant of Nego. Now, this is interesting because um, you could say, what's in a name? I mean, recently, uh, Eliana asked the question, why did he call me Eliana? That was a wonderful thing because Eliana means God is answered. I forgot to share with her that we prayed for her for a very long time. That was a blessing. But there is something in a name. Absolutely. Reading from Andrew Hill, uh, a commentator, he says the goal or desired outcome was reorientation of the exiled individual. And listen to this bit. In the thoughts, beliefs and practices of the oppressing nation. Typically, this reorientation included a change of name, symbolic of the loyalty of the subject to a new king, his nation, 
and his gods. This whole identity change was about taking these young men and repositioning them, reorientating them completely. It was a whole new identity. You're no longer going to worship the God who is my help. You're no longer going to worship the God who is my judge or the God who is gracious. You're now going to serve and worship these other gods. This was an attack on the core of who they were as people. It was an uprooting and a breaking down of identity. Now in 2023, would you agree with me that identity is a rather hot topic? Slightly hot topic. One that you have to dance around, one that you have to tiptoe around, because no matter what you say or how you say it, you will offend someone. And if you believe in the Bible, you'll offend everyone. Because your opinion is different to their opinion. But ours is not an opinion, it's fact, because it's the word of God. Amen? But if you look at identity today in our culture, identity is, is a choice, is it not? Identity is a choice, it's a decision. And quite often that identity is based on feelings, is based on emotions and circumstances of life. And because it's a choice, identity is really ambiguous. And this ambiguity leads to one thing and one thing only, that is confusion. Confusion. Where someone born as a human female doesn't know who or what they are. Where the world can't identify what actually is a woman. When you have people getting in trouble in schools because they will not affirm that someone is a cat. It gets confusing because it is confusing because identity is not just about your feelings or emotions. The Bible says this. It says you are created in the image of God, male and female. The world says this. Life is a coincidental accident and we are the result of millions of years of evolution. We are nothing. The Bible says that man is sinful since the garden. The Bible says that Jesus paid the price at the cross through his blood, through his body that was broken. The Bible says that sinful man must repent and must be born again. The world says, have your best life now. Do what makes you happy. Live for yourself as long as you don't offend anyone else. The Bible says that if you're born again, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus and your identity is found in him. The world says, be who you want to be. Your identity is based on feelings, and you can change as many times as you want based on your feelings. Daniel could thrive in this circumstance in Babylon because he knew who his God was. He was assured and he was confident. We can survive and thrive by knowing who we are in Christ Jesus that our identity is in him, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter how much the world tries to change that fact, in him we can find true belonging. And see, this whole process was a three-year process. It was an unholy, unholy realignment to an unholy culture. And as I was reading through this again this week, my question was, did it succeed? Did it succeed? How many of the Jewish men do we read about in the book of Daniel? Just, just four. How many fell into this world system, maybe because it was the easier option? 
Maybe they really liked the king's table. Maybe they really liked the new culture, the new lectures, the new information, the new knowledge. Maybe they liked the idea of a new identity, of being a solely new person. But how did they all respond, I wonder, under this coercion, under this manipulation, under this deception, this indoctrination, this reorientation? Because it's what we're facing in the world. It's what our children are facing, our grandchildren are going to face. Not all of these men would have come out the other side still serving and seeking their God. That's just a fact. And it's a fact of life even in the Christian world. Now, not everyone is going to continue to give their lives fully, solely devoted to Jesus. But look at verse 8. Key verse. But Daniel... Just consider that. We have these but God moments throughout the Bible, but this is a but Daniel moment. In the midst of this culture, in the midst of everything that's being thrown at him, he could have been 14, 15. But Daniel, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. We can learn from the pattern that Daniel sets for us. Just as we can learn from the pattern that Jesus sets for us, this is equally a pattern for us to follow. The first thing in the pattern, if you have on the screen, Daniel, is this. He purposed in his heart. He actively decided. He went away and he made a decision within himself. No doubt he prayed to his God. But he made this decision that he would not defile himself. Why? Well, yeah, the food is not kosher. That's one reason. But this food would have been offered to other gods. And he did not want any fellowship with these other gods. He did not want any fellowship with darkness. He wanted, at this point, to be distinctly different to those who were around him. And so he made this resolute decision, this determined decision to not eat of the king's table. And I'm wondering in your life, in my life, this morning, what do you need to say no to? What do you need to say no to? Something that could come into your life, something that maybe is already in your life that you don't need to say no to, you need to say no more to. Something that is defiling you. Something that is making you unholy before God. Impure before God. Maybe something you're watching. Something you're reading. Something you're listening to. Maybe it's a relationship you find yourself in. Maybe it's a relationship you're desiring to find yourself in. Maybe it's a career progression that you're looking to, but not really what God wants for you. What is it that you need to actively say, I will purpose in my heart to not allow that into my life? Secondly, Daniel made a request, and I find this really interesting because Christians sometimes when we find something that we disagree with can get a bit feisty and a bit hot under the collar, which can be good, absolutely. Jesus went in with a whip in the temple in his righteous anger, but I look at this and it says he made a request, and I find it fascinating because he didn't go in and make a demand. He didn't go in and make a scene. He didn't go in and make a violent process. He didn't sit down on the road so no one could get past. He simply went in and made a request. And if you look in verse 9, it says, God had brought Daniel as the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel didn't have to do anything. He just had to ask, and God had his back. 
God was with him. We read through Colossians, and one of the verses that stuck out to me in chapter 4 is this, especially in relation to the world around us and the way we talk to others. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, those who are outside of the faith, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I think Daniel had much wisdom when he went and requested rather than demanded. He had much wisdom when he went in and simply spoke to his man. And I think we can learn from that in certain situations in our life where we just have to trust that God's with us and we just have to go and speak calmly, gracefully, full of love. Thirdly, and this is the most important thing that Daniel did, he simply trusted God. He simply trusted God. And that's not always a straightforward thing to do, is it? But he simply trusted God and he walked by faith and he did not walk by sight. And he came into this eunuch and he said, I've got this idea. Me and my friends are going to eat just vegetables, grains, water. And we're not going to eat at the king's table. And, and what you can do is you can test it. Test it. After 10 days, if we are looking good, then let's carry on. If we're not, then maybe we should eat of the king's delicacies. After 10 days, God had done more, abundantly more than they could have asked for. They were fitter, they were stronger, they were healthier on this diet. And so they got to carry on and refrain from the king's delicacies. But God had their back. God was with them throughout every area, avenue of this situation and circumstance, no matter how complicated, difficult it may have seemed. Okay, the last slide of Danny. Essentially, behind enemy lines, Daniel did this. He took a stand. And maybe in your life right now, you think of when do I take the stand? I think you'll know. I think there'll be a point in your Christian life when you know this is the time to take a stand. This is the time to stand up. Last week, James hammered home the point that the word of God is the hill to die upon. The person of Jesus Christ is the hill to die upon. If anyone attacks that, that is the thing that we must stand up for. The word of God, that it is God-breathed, that it is without error. That Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. That he is who he says he is. But there will be a time in your life when you have to take a stand. Daniel's stand was this. His stand was to be holy. His stand was to be set apart. To be distinctly different in this Babylonian culture. And Daniel demonstrated his faith by putting it into action. He actually followed through. He didn't just talk about it. He walked it out. He lived it out. And Daniel declared his loyalty to God and not to the world system. He declared his loyalty to the God who he'd grown up with, who he'd seen to be faithful, who he knew to be true. You know, when I look at Daniel chapter 1, and I look at this pattern that, that he lays out for us, Daniel, I think we all have to learn from this. And either we're in these situations already in our workplaces, in our families, or we soon will be. And so we need to be prepared to follow, to purpose in our hearts, to make sure that we are living holy lives, lives where we are set apart for him, to trust in God. You know, as Joshua was coming to the end of his life, he said this, he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's in the midst of nations upon nations where they are worshipping, serving idols. And he looks around and goes, 
as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As we consider our lives behind enemy lines, and we consider this idea, are we thriving or just surviving? If we take this and live it out, then we will start to see a change in our own perspective. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will trust the word of God and the God of the word. As for me and my house, we will follow Jesus. No turning back. Amen? We live in a strange time. But the God that we read of in Daniel is the same God that we have today. Nebuchadnezzar tried to say, my God is greater than yours, but we know that's a lie. There's no one like our God. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we find in these pages. We thank you that it is truly life itself. God, would you help each and every one of us to live in the midst of this Babylonian culture and system that we find ourselves in? That we would be men and women of the word of God, not men and women who are shaped and influenced and molded by the world system. Men who are led by your spirit, not by emotions and feelings. God, we trust in you. We trust that you are the almighty God. We trust that you are in control. Move us as your people, stir us as your people to do your will here on earth. We pray in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.